Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us, and we read them for your feedback. We're here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. Becoming an adult has never been easy, but today we have COVID, violent extremism, climate change, and an unstable economy. People in their 20s and 30s are under a lot of added pressure as they launch independent lives. So what does it take to get adulting right, and how is growing up today different from what it used to be? Julie Lithcott-Hames is a New York Times bestselling author of How to Raise an Adult. She did a viral TED Talk about how parents can stop micromanaging their children's lives. Her latest book is Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, and Julie speaks directly to young adults about what they can do to lead successful, fulfilling lives. So I have to say, first of all, I absolutely love your newsletter. Writing a good newsletter takes a lot of time, and one of your recent ones was called Our Eyes Locked As She Drew My Blood. It really resonated with me as, you know, along with my friends, I'm doing all of my middle-aged healthcare and lifestyle adjustments, and we do a lot of coverage of health and wellness on our body politics. So tell us about the experience that you shared. Yeah, so that experience was sitting atop the larger experience of my having been body shamed by a doctor at my student health center back when I was 20. And I'm 54 as we chat today. So I've been carrying the memory of that shame. I went in for bronchitis and came out with a sheet describing a 1200 calorie diet. And I learned then uh, that potentially any doctor would not be able to see past my weight uh, to the actual underlying need. I'm the child of a public health doctor who has been taught to fear healthcare uh, because of how I was treated and mistreated over the years. And so this most recent story, um, I'm getting my blood drawn and I had one arm already bandaged and and she looked at it and sort of, why is your arm already bandaged since I'm about to draw your blood? I was like, yeah, I was here yesterday. She was like, you were? I said, yeah, I'd been putting off a blood draw from like a year ago that my doctor wanted and I'm kind of feeling sheepish and I'm explaining. Um, and she said, what about your mammogram? And I said, well, I'm a little behind on that too. And she said, so am I. And I said, you are? Mm. And she said, yeah, I'm afraid. And then she walked toward me and she pressed her hand into her breast and said, I'm just worried there's something there and I'm so scared. And all of a sudden we weren't the phlebotomist and the patient. We were two women, just eyes locked, you know, with eyes demonstrating I'm afraid, and yet I feel safe with you in this moment. God knows why. And we ended up having this dialogue and so on. We ended up exchanging cell numbers to say, like, I'll get my mammogram. I'm going to tell you when I get mine. And um, I was blown away that somebody within the healthcare system was herself afraid to go get the information that would allow her to make better decisions about her life. And so my advocating to her for why she should go in helped me realize, Julie, why are you putting it off? And then I realized I need to tell her, invite her to tell me why not to be afraid because I'm gaining so much strength in advocating for her. Maybe she'll gain strength in advocating for me. Yeah, I mean, I have so many reactions to that. First of all, I had two dear ones diagnosed with breast cancer last year. Both of them got great treatment and are healing, and I'm grateful for that. Um, Two, one of my formational childhood events was that um, 
you know, there was a family uh, that was very close to my family, a co-worker of my mom's, and she felt a lump, didn't want to think about it, and it turned out to be metastatic breast cancer by the time she actually got treatment. So mm-hmm. part of my childhood was marked by this woman who was like an aunt to me, mm-hmm. passing away and her daughters having to move out of town um, mm-hmm. to live with their father, uh, her ex-husband. So all of this resonates, and it's so hard to just um, click into this. And also, I will say I resonate with the fat shaming. You know, I'm significantly overweight. But the reality is shaming never helped me. My shaming myself, my mother shaming me when I was younger, and doctor shaming me never worked on weight. You know, I need positive motivation, not shaming. So kudos to all of that. And may we may we proceed with health. May we proceed with health. May we not let others' opinions shame us out of living fully and well. Yeah, that could be a whole other show. So let's turn to your books. You worked with young folks for years when you were a dean at Stanford, and your previous book, How to Raise an Adult, focuses on ways that parents overmanage their children. You did a viral TED Talk. You talked about how parents shouldn't worry as much about what college their kids get into, as you put it, quote, the habits, the mindset, the skill set, the wellness to be successful wherever they may go. And now you've got this new book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. What made you write it? Well, the first book appears to be for parents, and it is, but I'm no parenting expert. I was a college dean, as you've said, and I was noticing the rise of helicopter parenting at the university level. And so I was concerned about how this overmanagement, this micromanagement of 18 to 22 year olds was undermining their agency and their resilience and contributing to poor mental health. My purpose with that book was to advocate for the right of young people to live freely unfettered by this micromanagey style of parenting. So this new book is just now directly for the young people. Now, after writing that book for parents about what to do differently, now I'm squarely in the corner of the young people who have articulated, I don't want to adult, I don't know how to adult, adulting is scary. I get it, it is scary. And you know what? You've got this. You do hard things. You're going to be able to figure this out. And I'm here rooting for you. And that's the voice I try to take in this book. Just give us a little teaser about what you discovered about adulthood along the way. Well, uh, first and foremost, it's simply the reverse of childhood. People say, I don't know how to adult. I think it begs the question, what is adulting? Mm -hmm. And my definition is it's the opposite of childhood. You are more or less responsible for yourself. And it is work. And it is at times scary. But on the other side of that work and fear is the delicious sense of, hey, I'm in charge of myself. It's not up to someone else to decide where I go, who I am, what to study, what to do for work, who to love, who to be, all of that. The other thing I want to say is things have changed. Today's millennials and older Gen Zs often have a grandparent who's like, when I was your age, you know, I had a job, I had a wife, you know, it's like, okay, grandpa, things have changed at a Mm. macroeconomic level in many cities today. Someone in their 20s simply cannot afford to rent an apartment 
let alone buy a home. We have constructed a society that has made it inhospitable to be a young adult in many major metropolitan areas. And guess what? That's not their fault. So my book is, I think, offering strategies for how to harness the power of you, the individual, to look after yourself and your belongings and your business and your mental health and make good choices in order to do the work that lights you up. Frankly, even if that means leaving the Bay Area where I live, Uh, and moving to a more affordable place so you can have the life you imagine. That's definitely one of the messages of the book. And the other key message is stop pleasing others. They have no idea who you are. You're not a dog on a leash. You're not someone else's project. You get to decide. This book centers the agency of every single young adult. Yeah, I just want to name some of the people that you profile in the book. I'm going to give you three names. And after each one... Could you just let us know a little bit about them, their life stories, lessons they illustrate about adulting? So let me start with Kyle. Who is he? Kyle is a kid who grew up in Appalachia. I had a mom who was addicted to opioids and his father had passed away when he was 12. So Kyle was the air quotes man of the family with a really troubled mom and a younger sister whom he had to look after. And he went off to college uh, really fearful of leaving his sister behind. But ultimately, he has lived the American dream in the sense of got the education, did what he needed to to level up his skills so that he could be even more impactful at trying to not just assist his family and himself, but to be of use to others in the world. Yeah. And then another one of the people you interview is Zuri. Yeah. So Zuri is an African-American woman. I should have said Kyle. I I mentioned he was from Appalachia. I should have made clear white male. Um, Zuri's an African-American female, went to Spelman, wants to be an actor, comes to L.A. and is hustling, hustling, hustling to go to those auditions and try to get shows and whatnot and um, working as a nanny and teaching yoga and still needs to be on public assistance in order to just make ends meet in that very expensive market known as Los Angeles and ultimately gets her big break and gets cast on a TV show. And then a friend's like, let's go to lunch. And the friend clearly expects Zuri is going to treat. And the friend orders wine and dessert and all the other things in between. And Zuri's like, I'm still on food stamp. You know, I, I, I've been cast on the show, but I don't have an income yet. Right. And oh, the friend, boy, that, was, that, that was, I was like, woo, entitlement. Entitlement. And Zuri learned like, my no is essential. I need to be able to draw boundaries around what I will do and won't do. I need to speak up for myself and not let other people kind of push their presumptions onto me. The final person I want to ask about, and you have many more case studies in this book, is Jamie. Ooh, Jamie, the Southern California Latino surfer. Um, Jamie's the child of immigrants from Mexico. I believe, if I recall correctly, Jamie's the youngest out of, uh, I think, nine siblings. And growing up, his dad was super clear. You're going to a school here that's teaching you how to use your brain. And I need to also teach you how to use your body and your hands and to develop a work ethic. So he said... When he was young, I think Jamie was 10, you're going to go to your grandfather's peanut farm this summer in Mexico. I'm going to take you down there. You're going to work the farm every day with your grandfather. You're going to earn money and you're going to earn your way back to California. <laughs> Jamie's like 10, Oof. like, Dad, what? And and that's what happens. And, you know, Jamie thought his father was the cruelest thing. 
But over time, Jamie realized as he went summer after summer and really learned how his blind grandfather managed to ply his wares, sell those peanuts in the stalls, how he learned to discern which customer was which, given his blindness, he was able to pick up on different clues. Jamie was learning so many life lessons around hard work and perseverance and character from his grandpa and his father. Ultimately, Jamie's in the character, in the chapter on building character because um, of those life lessons embedded in him young about what really matters and how to have perspective. That was Julie Lithcott-Hames, author of Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. And coming up next, we hear more from Julie, including the perils of people-pleasing. Plus, lawyers Tiffany Jeffers and Michelle Goodwin discuss the impact that an overturned row could have on women of color. That's on Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with best-selling author Julie Lithcott-Hames about the challenges of growing up today and her book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. It's not just young adults in their 20s and 30s who are struggling, of course. People of all ages are dealing with stress, overwhelm, and the desire to lead more fulfilling lives. I talk with Julie about how her own journey growing up biracial, then parenting children with the help of her mother, helped her find the work she loves to do. Let's go back to people-pleasing. People-pleasing has been a tough one for me. It's come up in my family. It's come up in, you know, work. It's come up in also, like, being the one who buys everybody lunch. You know, not maybe as much when I was younger, but as I got older, I sort of felt like, oh, well, let me just treat everybody. And it's like, why don't you save for a house? Um, (laughs) So what is people-pleasing to you? How do you define it, and how does it show up as we challenge ourselves to adult Well, let me say I'm not a psychologist, so anything I'm about to say comes from my lived experience and observations. I will name it for myself and not try to extrapolate my why to anyone else's, but my why behind why I'm a people pleaser is I came into this world and pretty quickly got the message that I was problematic. I'm 54, born in 1967. In the year Loving versus Virginia was handed down, right? The Supreme Court case that said interracial marriages are not uh, illegal anywhere and those laws are unconstitutional. I came into America and witnessed the looks on people's faces when I was young, staring at my dad with that white racist sneer, not all white people, staring at my parents when they were together, black dad, white mom, staring at me. What are you? What is that? You know, I just seemed like this fuzzy, light-skinned oddity. And I think that my people-pleasing comes from early, mean, cruel unkindnesses directed toward me from teachers and strangers and friends, frankly, and classmates. And the people-pleasing is my attempt, or was, I've done so much work in my 40s, I'm, I'm not that person anymore. I think I'm largely rid of it, although not entirely, obviously. But certainly coming up and well into my adulthood, it was I'm trying to not be called the N-word again. I'm Mm. trying to not incur your wrath or your disdain or your disregard. You know, I am trying to show up in every moment, in every conversation, in every meeting with whatever greatness, with whatever I can do to incur your approval as a matter of emotional safety and protection. Mm. Yep. 
No, I mean, I, I resemble those remarks. And, mm-hmm. you know, what I find, it, you know, at least for me, is that when I go into people-pleasing mode, I'm not checking my motives. And then uh, usually my motivation somehow involves me being Miss Big Stuff and being the magnanimous one who takes care of everyone. And then I'm burnt out. I'm like, people are taking advantage of me. It's like, <laughs> no, you threw yourself under the bus, you know? Mm, uh, mm-hmm. and, and really part of my journey with people pleasing has been to learn that it's not actually pleasing because <laughs> I end up resenting it. But, you know, what do you think the hardest lesson was for you? I think the hardest lesson for me for I was feedback Um, Mm. I I share in the chapter, You're Not Perfect, that I was crushing it, I thought, as the dean of freshmen about 18 months into this job I would hold for 10 years at Stanford University when a colleague took me out for lunch and told me that some other colleagues were saying I was a ladder climber who didn't care who she stepped on on the way to the top. Mm. And look, this was a another black woman. I didn't feel that the conversation or the critique was in any way racialized, which frankly was a relief. I didn't have to add that to the mix. Um, and I was so ashamed, just noticing how often the word shame is coming up in our conversation, but I want to name it. I was ashamed to be the person who needed to receive that feedback. And, you know, what she was saying was, you're a lone wolf, you're a lone actor, you know, all you do, it's like, I, 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 I'm going to, you know, and frankly, my law background was about, like, have the right argument, make a compelling argument, convince the people, move on. In academia, it was the opposite. It was collegial, collaborative, like, don't just impose your good ideas and call it a day, like, go listen to people, which I was not doing. Right. And so my journey to be able to, to discover, oh, heck, I am so imperfect. I need to have to be pulled aside and given this feedback. And of course, it wasn't going to be the last time. But every single time I did allow that feedback in and ingested and digested and mulled over, a big shift came because I was able to then incorporate that feedback and then level up. And so my life has taught me, if you're willing to listen to the feedback and figure out what you want to incorporate, that's where the growth opportunity comes. And I think that's the central, one of the central messages of the book is it ain't about perfection. It's about you're here to learn and grow until you take your last breath. So every time something doesn't go right, didn't go your way, or you outright effed it up, what can you learn from that? Because guess what? You're going to be stronger, more capable, more confident, more calm next time. And you also talk about how you ended up with the career you've ended up in. You know, you didn't start out wanting to be an academic dean. What did you start out wanting to do and why did you change? I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a public interest lawyer. I wanted to be a lawyer like Thurgood Marshall, who, as Mm. many of your listeners know, litigated Brown v. Board and became our nation's first Black Supreme Court justice. I'm smiling now at myself, like, I'm going to be a Supreme Court, you know. Hey, you know, nothing wrong. All hail Brown Jackson. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Right? And um, so I went to law school for that purpose. I'd fallen in love with law as a way to heal and fix and transform a society. And trouble was, as a young, insecure Black woman in an elite law school environment, very much a people pleaser, I gleaned that the praise came not from public interest law jobs, but from corporate jobs. So though I had gone to law school to help and had I was really getting into family law, like kids, kids in the system, and how can we help kids whose lives have gone awry, no fault of their own? 
I just abandoned all of that and instead went in search of corporate offers and got plenty and came to a law firm here in Silicon Valley in Palo Alto, a great law firm, Cooley Godward, where I became an intellectual property litigator. And Mm. I was good at it and mentored and paid well. And I just felt this knot in my stomach every Sunday afternoon at two at the thought of having to go back in because the work was not my work. I was good at it, but I did not love it. And in that moment of misery, I realized it's not enough to be good at your work. If you don't also love it, you will feel like a drone going through the motions of your own life. And in that misery, I gave myself permission to ask myself, who are you actually? What are you good at? Plus, what do you love? And can you find work that lives at that intersection? And that's what led me toward higher education administration to try to help students make better choices than I had made at their age. And now you've transitioned again to being author and thought leader. And I'm here to learn and grow. So who knows what's next? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to help humans for my thing as is your thing, I think, and, and many people, mm-hmm. right? I, I'm here to, to be of use. My mother likes to say, you're reinventing yourself. And I like to say, no, I'm just showing up in a different way to serve the same goal. I mean, I ache at the thought of people being left behind. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes back to feeling like an outsider from the start. Let's just touch on your uh, family and household. You talk about being the daughter of a woman from Yorkshire, I believe it is, in in the northern UK. And I loved in the audiobook where you had your mother read a poem. um, (laughs) And then a Black American father. And you also did some intergenerational parenting with your mother living in the home with you (sighs) and your partner as you raised your children. And, um, you know, how did that shape how you view (laughs) you know, um, this question of adulting. Wow. Well, you're sort of teeing up a future book of mine, which is not yet written. It's a concept in my head, but this intergenerational compact, which we entered into to afford the public schools in Palo Alto. So my mother decided to go in with me and Dan on a house that was really damaged, but that's her equity and ours from a different Mm -hmm. house, right? That's how we made it work. And we then have lived now for 20 years together intergenerationally. And it has been full of the upsides anyone can imagine. Three adults in a house raising two kids, free childcare, the best childcare, loving. My mother's an educator. She's a very loving person. And yet, the dynamic between me and my mother, whether it's because she's from England and I'm from the U.S., or she's her generation, I'm mine, or her person, whatever. It was just headbutt, 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 headbutt at the dining table, at the mm. kitchen counter. And often with my mom in the house, I felt my agency encroached upon as I was a mother and a wife and a human who was an adult trying to mm-hmm. make my own way, make my own decisions. I had a very smart, thoughtful, opinionated mom muttering <laughs> or trying to tell me what to do. And... So I would really, I battled that. And I think that's that's probably informed some of my writing. And, you know, she and I now have coffee every morning from eight to nine. And just recently she said, you know, I'm not sure we would have gotten here in terms of our psychological knowing of one another. She said, I'm not sure we would have gotten here if it was all up to me. She acknowledged we wouldn't have gotten to this point of relative ease with one another. So I'm proud of her for being able to recognize that. I'm proud of us both for being able to do the work. And I think that's informed some of my writing. 
Yeah. Well, let's turn back to younger people. Um, and you have raised two of them into adulthood. Congratulations. Thank you. So, you know, your first book, How to Raise an Adult, came out in 2015. And then after that, we had a pandemic, racial reckonings, you know, school shootings, insurrection. It's a lot for people of every age. And what advice do you have or how would you at least offer some thoughts on being overwhelmed, being overwhelmed by it all? Yeah, my own kids are 23 and soon to be 21. And I very much write in furtherance of them thriving. Of course, our own kids don't necessarily read what we write. So I have to hope someone else gives them my book. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) um, I think first and foremost, I would honor the overwhelm. Yes, you're overwhelmed. Absolutely. Let's talk about that. Let's validate that. It is real and it's valid. Number one. Number two. Yep. And now what are we going to do? Let's reframe what we can't do. The pandemic said, you can't do this, you can't do that. Um, All of these other systemic problems, some of which you've named, right, tell us what we can't do or what is wrong. Let's reframe as what I can do. My theory of change is at the level of the individual. What can Mm. each of us do in ourselves, in our family units, with the strangers we interact with and neighbors and colleagues and friends to spread Kindness, frankly, I think kindness is the magical elixir that if we could all drink it down and have it animate who we are for, you know, a week, we would watch the human community level up and begin to heal. But of course, we aren't kind to people who are different than us, particularly now. So that's why I call kindness one of our superpowers uh, at the at the very end of your turn. It's like at the end of the day, you know what you can do to really make a difference? Kindness and gratitude and a mindfulness practice. These are mm. your superpowers that will help you make uh, make your life a better one and improve the lives of everyone. Yeah, I mean, um, I interviewed Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn, who won the Nobel for Medicine, and she does research on cellular aging and telomeres. And one of the things she found was that mindfulness practices could help reverse stress-related cellular aging. She looked at people who were doing caregiving, which really can add to your stress. And I thought that was fascinating. And only now in my 50s am I really beginning to take uh, a mindfulness practice seriously as a daily thing. You know, um, some people find it much younger. But let's talk about just the level of stress and burnout and also the additional burden of this pandemic, the American Psychological Association's Stress in America 2022 survey found that 77%, 77%, more than three quarters of 18 to 25 year olds said that, quote, the COVID-19 pandemic has stolen major life moments that they will never get back. So how do you talk to someone who kind of started their adulthood forged in the crucible of this pandemic. I think anytime you're talking to humans and they express an element of trauma or of deep sadness, as this generation is expressing in response to surveys, and I'm glad they're speaking up about it, I think empathy and compassion are the very first necessary response. Too often in the older generation, we dismiss feelings. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, get over it. Oh, you're so sensitive. Oh, blah, 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 blah. None of that is helpful. Empathy and compassion are enormous tools. Helping a person feel they're heard when they express such anguish um, is key. And then 
I think it's what I try to say is quite likely our ancestors went through even worse. You know, I'm talking to you as a seventh generation made American by my great, 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 great grandmother, Sylvie, who was a slave in Charleston, South Carolina in the mm. late 1700s, who mm -hmm. was raped by her master. Wow. And when I'm feeling like my life is challenging or whatnot, I just draw upon the strength that I know is in my DNA and in my ancestral memories. I know there's pain there too, but I try to stand on their shoulders. And I would say that to 18 to 25 year olds, like think about your ancestors, see what you can draw from the lessons of the past. I was denied um, some of my major life moments. What am I gonna do now to really activate what I want? Because I've been deprived of doing what I wanted or having what I needed. It is my right now to really level that up. And um, so I think there's actually some nice permission embedded in this. Like, yeah, you did have stuff sort of stolen. So what is it that you want to claim now? Don't waste your life. And I'm going to be stereotypical now. Like, don't go get that Wall Street job that you think you, quote, should, or everybody says you ought to do. And I'm air quoting this. Like, go do the work. That lights you up. You have had major life moments stolen. Now is not the time to continue to let systems and opinions limit you. Now mm -hmm. is the time to say, this is my one wild and precious life quoting the Ooh, late poet mary, mary oliver, oliver yes. right like go it's yours it is yours it is precious and it's wild go live it amen to all of that and so my last question is how do you give back when you feel frustrated by the world oh well um i blog weekly it's called Julie's Pod, and I try to be very open and vulnerable about what I'm experiencing, observing about my life, my America, my town. And I'm trying to demonstrate that when we're vulnerable, we can connect really beautifully with other humans. And lately, I've been, as many of us have, Farai, just feeling like giving up. Pandemic, systemic racialized violence, climate catastrophe, etc., and I've decided, no, now is not the time for someone like me at my age and stage to give up. It's the opposite that's required. In furtherance of that, I have just decided to throw my hat in the ring to be uh, on the ballot for city council here in Palo Alto oh, wow. to try to love this city. I, I've been in fight or flight from my own city because of issues I've experienced around unbelonging as a Black person here, for example. And because of my frustration over lack of affordable housing, I've been sort of like, oh, my kids are grown. Maybe I should leave. And I've decided mm. not to leave. I've decided to stay and fight for all of us. Wow. That is that is intense and amazing and, <laughs> and scary. Hopefully, hopefully fruitful. Yeah. Well, I hope to learn a thing or two along the way, regardless of what happens in November. It is a learning curve. And I am here to learn and grow until I take my last breath. Well, Julie, I look forward to hearing more about your adventures in elected office and as an author and thought leader. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate you and all the listeners for being with us. That was Julie Lithcott-Hames on her new book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. Coming up next, our weekly roundtable Sip in the Political Tea revisits our coverage of the overturn of Roe v. Wade and what's at stake for women of color. You're listening to Our Body Politic.
Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. In the wake of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, both supporters and opponents of abortion rights have focused on state laws and access. On the federal level, President Biden signed an executive order aimed at protecting doctors who perform abortions to protect the lives of pregnant patients in states with new laws restricting abortion. In May, when the draft of the Dobbs opinion was leaked, we spoke with our legal contributor Tiffany Jeffers, Georgetown law professor, and Michelle Goodwin, chancellor's professor at UC Irvine and author of Policing the Womb, Invisible Women, and the Criminalization of Motherhood. It's a great moment to revisit the mix of academic wisdom and lived experience which these scholars bring to this key issue at this moment. Welcome, Professor Goodwin. Thank you so much for inviting me to your show. Hi, Tiffany. Hi, Farai. I want to start out before we dive in here to take a minute to acknowledge the deep spiritual, physical, and economic pain that so many people are in right now. Um, We're going to talk today about abortion access rooted in the lived experience of Black girls and women, and it's going to be heavy. And I sort of feel like what we do on this show is that we carry the weight, we acknowledge the weight, we share the load, and we drop it when we can. And we keep on keeping on. So thank you both for joining us. And on that level, Michelle, I want to thank you personally for being brilliant, brave, vulnerable. Not quite six months ago, you wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times. It's called, I was raped by my father and abortion saved my life. And every word is a must read. Like, you're so clear. What made you write this? Right now, the United States Supreme Court is considering a case from Mississippi, and it's a case that involves a 15-week abortion ban. It makes no exceptions for cases of rape or incest. These are aspects now of law that we wouldn't have even seen five years ago. Now, to be clear, the Mississippi abortion ban has not gone into effect yet. I wrote this piece because it was a piece that needed to be articulated. Recently, there's been a leaked draft opinion from the United States Supreme Court that signals the dismantling altogether of Roe v. Wade. There has been a historic arc in this country that has never given any kind of compassionate deliberation to the lives of Black women. And now to see the specter of what is happening and the failure to engage with what at the bottom line lies behind these laws, there was the need to articulate. And because I have personal experience in this domain, I could speak directly to what that pain happens to look like, what that torture happens to be. Thank you so much for being willing to give us more perspective on, you know, your life's work um, as an academic and, and also lived experience. And both of you are legal scholars who are deeply embedded in, you know, the lived experience of being American, not just being black or female, but being American. Tiffany, in some of my other previous reporting, I interviewed a woman who was forced to be a child bride in a white supremacist cult. And this is not the most common experience in the world, but sexual coercion of young women of all races happens in different ways and different reasons. My neighbor, as I was growing up, who has passed on since, was forced to marry her rapist. She was an elderly black woman by the time I knew her as a child, and 
she was forced to marry her rapist. How do you, as a former prosecutor who has dealt with sex crimes, juvenile justice, many different things, and now a legal scholar, look at the playing field of what's happening with abortion access and abortion uh, law against the backdrop of the lived experience of America, including race and gender? So sexual victimization is so intersectional because it's psychological, it's physical, and it's emotional. And when you see young girls that have been victimized sexually, there are some instances where their abuser has done such a psychological transformation on them that they don't see themselves as victims. Mm. And that's the scary and dangerous part of victimizing young children, young girls, is because then they become a party in their own victimization and their own assault. So that's been a difficult part in working with victims is helping them realize that, number one, they're not to blame. Number two, this was actually wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, some people don't see this as a crime because it's just been the way it is for so long. You know, Black girls not being in possession of their own bodily autonomy for centuries in this country. And that even as we've navigated civil rights, that hasn't necessarily translated to bodily autonomy for young Black girls in significant, meaningful ways. And so if we can help stop victimization before it starts, I think that's going to make a bigger difference than solely working on helping victims recover after they've been psychologically and physically terrorized in this way. In the draft, Justice Samuel Alito wrote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. Michelle, starting with you, how did you process this opinion? Well, first, there's been much writing about the fact that there was a leak, and that is highly unusual. And so that is a story, but it's not the story. The story is actually this draft opinion and what it contains. And this draft opinion has numerous errors and omissions and engages in the kind of outcome, determinative, cherry-picking that is discouraged even amongst law students. (laughs) You have to deal with the full body of law. Now, you can argue against legal precedents, but you can't pretend they don't exist. I think it's important that your audience understand that textualism and originalism is a contemporary feature. Let's start with the fact that in the opinion, Justice Alito refers to fetuses. He refers to unborn child. But here's what's interesting is that the Constitution makes no reference to fetuses, embryos, or unborn children. None. And in fact, what the Constitution does say in the very first sentence of the 14th Amendment is that citizens of this country are people who are born. Now, that level of omission is absolutely glaring. The fact that he would reference the 14th Amendment but not its most crucial first sentence, given this opinion, says so much. 
You're listening to Sip in the Political Tea on Our Body Politic. I am Farai Chidea. This week, we are diving deep into questions about abortion and the law and lived experience with Michelle Goodwin, the chancellor's professor at the University of California, Irvine, and host of the podcast on the issues with Michelle Goodwin. We've also got Tiffany Jeffers, the Our Body Politic legal contributor, uh, associate professor of law at Georgetown University. You know, first of all, if we were constitutional originalists, there would be no women voting, no women in elected office, and no female Supreme Court justices. So let's start with that originalism. And on top of that, from what I understand, the framework around childbirth in the founding of the country was around the British framework of life beginning at the quickening, you know, about 18 weeks, about when uh, one might feel a baby move. And so the framework of life beginning at conception is not something that I believe the originalists were familiar with. Let's be clear, you know, as well, the originalists did not have sonograms, right? So this this whole idea about, you know, here's what they perceived is just absolutely inaccurate. You know, as I say, the pilgrims were performing abortions. The indigenous people on whose lands we are recording uh, practice all manner of you know, birth control, abortion, carrying pregnancies to term, all of that. And turning to you, Tiffany, still sticking with Justice Samuel Alito writing, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. What sticks out to you about the draft? What sticks out to me is the historical dishonesty in the opinion, uh, the poor reasoning, the logical leaps and liberties that are taken, the analytical flaws in reasoning, um, but also Justices Alito's efforts to go overboard in ensuring that no other privacy rights are in danger, which I think is also dishonest based on the way he wrote this opinion, framing it around explicit rights, originalism and textualism within the Constitution, but then to say that no other non-explicit rights are in danger so people shouldn't be alarmed. And to frame that as hysteria within the opinion is a form of gaslighting and intellectual bullying. And Michelle, obviously, you are um, author of Policing the Womb, Invisible Women, and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Tell me a little bit more about how the scope of your work relates to this question of what rights women have when women are birthing parents. The story that we know is that this is a country that's been satiated on and at different points addicted to the pain and suffering of Black women. And when it's no longer been satiated by or fed by that kind of terrorism on Black women's bodies, then it's just been so deeply normalized that that's just simply the norm, tolerating the way in which politicians uh, regard and describe uh, black women as, you know, historically crack moms, welfare queens, all these various kinds of things, these kind of denigrating ways of capturing quite inaccurately uh, who black women are as mothers. But in the book, what I do is I unpack that, but also what's been happening to uh, poor white women across the country. There's an argument that's being made on the right that abortions are detrimental to the black population. You know, for example, you've got T.W. Shannon, who's a Senate candidate uh, in Oklahoma, uh, a black man who wrote in a Fox News op-ed that, quote, the same race hustling, 
mostly rich and white Democrat politicians who've been telling black Americans for 50 years that all conservatives hate them, proudly support an organization that is single-handedly responsible for the deaths of more black people than the Ku Klux Klan. And that organization, um, you know, in his writing is Planned Parenthood. What do you make of that argument, Michelle? There's uh, been histories of flat-out misrepresentation and lying uh, to paper over the injustices that have been experienced and inflicted on Black people. It's absolutely undeniable that Black women were reproductive chattel in this country, relegated to the status of property, uh, not allowed the status to even be parents to their own children. That is the history. This kind of reference to Planned Parenthood as being responsible for and starting up as a means of destroying Black communities is absolutely inaccurate. And actually, at the end of the day, these are about their efforts to win campaigns and to get people to vote for them. Well, let me bring you in, Tiffany. You know, as Michelle has been talking I've been thinking about a couple of different things. One are the stats on black women having the highest rates of abortions, also three times more likely to die of pregnancy-related causes than white women. I'm also thinking about your work as uh, a prosecutor and dealing with juvenile justice, and, and I can't help but think how often black women are blamed for black children's deeds. And and as someone who's had a very expansive life, I am well-traveled enough and well-networked enough to know how race and money affect the prospects of children um, and who gets treatment for mental health issues, who gets uh, quietly disciplined after being violent and who goes to jail for it. So I, I view it all as a spectrum of how Black women and all women may be blamed for having children that they didn't want to have and don't have the resources to raise. How do you make sense of that picture, particularly as it affects Black and BIPOC women? The time I spent in the juvenile division, all of the juvenile cases came to the same courtroom. There was no separation of family cases and criminal cases. Uh, The delinquency and the family court was just one courtroom. So oftentimes, even if I wasn't trying a case or working through a deal, I'd sit in the courtroom and see what was happening with parental rights. Oftentimes in Baltimore, uh, where I practiced, uh, I think it's probably close to 65% of the family law cases that came through the juvenile system were Black families. And to see the way that the court had to navigate parental rights because of poverty and addiction issues and It wasn't limited to the Black moms. The blame of mothers because of the circumstances, the health crises that they found themselves in with relation to addiction issues was really overwhelming. Oftentimes there was no um, father present in the room. And when there was, he struggled with his own, you know, mental health, substance abuse issues, poverty issues, health crisis, health challenges. And so it was a really sad experience to witness the lack of agency that those mothers found themselves in and the desperation that the children faced was devastating to watch. And I I think when this opinion comes out, even if the language is changed, what it's going to do to abortion access is going to just exacerbate these problems that are happening in local courthouses all across this country. Thanks, Tiffany. And what I want to end with is 
you know, the national landscape again. According to a new Politico morning consult poll, the majority of voters, 53 percent, say Roe v. Wade should not be overturned. 28 percent say it should be. And on Wednesday, the Senate blocked legislation writing abortion into federal law. So, Tiffany, what are your final thoughts here? My final thoughts for I are, I would say, based in more hope than desperation because we've experienced the right and we're not starting from ground zero. We're not starting from scratch where we're fighting for the unknown. For 50 years in this country, women had the autonomy to control their decision of what happened to their body. And I think that having tasted those rights, when they're taken away, it's going to be a bitter fight to regain them. But I think we'll be successful. I'm hopeful. I put hope in, in the people because that's, the, that's who's going to fight. It's going to be us. And so that's sort of what I'm holding on to these days. And Michelle, your final thoughts. Yes, I would agree with you, Tiffany, and that is we must not lose hope and we must not surrender our joy. And I think there's a lot to be learned from the victories that uh, communities have had, um, Black communities, communities of color, farm worker communities who've prevailed over time. And I think that we're going to be in a time where we have the opportunity to get it right better than we have even before. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you. And thank you, Tiffany. Thank you, Farai. That was Tiffany Jeffers, Associate Professor of Law at Georgetown University and Our Body Politic contributor, and Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor at the University of California, Irvine, and author of Policing the Womb, Invisible Women, and the Criminalization of Motherhood. She's also the host of the podcast On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm the executive producer and host, Farai Chidea. Bianca Martin is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister and Tracy Caldwell are our booking producers. Emily J. Daly, Steve Lack, and Teresa Carey are our producers. Natina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three Cs. Today's episode was produced with the help of Lauren Schild and engineered by Archie Moore. This program is produced with support from the Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you. 